We grew up during the school shooter epidemic in America. I grew up around 30 minutes away from Sandy Hook. The, the 911 dispatchers and call takers, the people that are answering the phone, they really do exceptional work. It's just that the tools that they were given to do that, they're doing the, like, the best that they can. Their systems weren't designed to take in this other type of information. This problem that we had seen people around us struggle with and our own communities deal with. It. As a startup, we're like, okay, let's just go out and build it. Build that, that bridge between the schools and emergency services. And in doing so, we created Prepared Live, which we launched in two centers. And within two weeks of launching that software that allowed live video to be taken into that center, we actually saved our first life. Welcome back to another episode of the Generation Hustle podcast. We are continuing our founder stories after the end of season one of the VC series. So this week, we're exploring ways to streamline and innovate emergency services. Episode 83 is with Neil Sony, co-founder of Prepared. Prepared is a startup building technology to better connect citizens to the US emergency calling system. Currently, 911 call centers are technologically antiquated and unable to accept anything besides calls. Prepared services allow 911 dispatchers to send callers a text that connects them to a web app where they can upload images, videos, GPS location, and even text messages back and forth. Born out of personal experience, as Neil was a student in Westport schools during the 2012 Sandy Hook massacre. Today, over 30 cities have signed up for prepared services to help keep schools and citizens safer. So we sit down with Neil to discuss the journey to building prepared. He details the personal life experiences that led him and his co-founders to building on the idea, how prepared is actively saving lives, issues with the emergency services infrastructure in place today, and much more. This was such a great conversation that we hope you enjoy. Prepared. How's it going, Neil? Hey, Amon. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. So, you know, today we're going to go into a deep dive of you actually exploring and building a company in an industry that has been pr pretty much archaic for the longest time. So kudos to your team on actually tackling that problem. And we actually wanted to also chat about other areas such as, you know, building a co-founding team, solving mm -hmm. problems um, in terms of coding and engineering. Uh, so a bunch of uh, different areas. But first, if you could just give an introduction of maybe your experience, what you currently do, uh, and a high level of prepared. Yeah, so at a high level, what Prepared is trying to do is we're rethinking the way the 911 call flow works. So the way you can think about it is there's around uh, 240 million 911 calls a year. 80% of those are from mobile devices. Right now, 911 systems are designed around audio. And, and really, all they can take in is audio data with some metadata attached to that audio. Uh, we see that as a big gap in the current emergency systems in America. So we, the way you can think about it is we've seen through our software prepared live uh, that there's some there's a lot of life-saving use cases of live video during these incidents uh, and taking in video and other multimedia information. It, our goal is to move that transition from right now, uh, as you mentioned earlier, 9 is using these archaic systems. We want to transition 9 from using audio to being live video. And if we move that transition up even one single year, as I mentioned earlier, there's 240 million 9 calls a year. That's millions of 911 calls and millions of moments that are incredibly impactful that we can uh, potentially help save lives during. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an amazing thing that you're tackling. Talk to us about how you actually came up with the idea uh, or the team, I should say, uh, and why was it important to you personally to actually go after this problem? Yeah, so we really started off uh, working in public safety around four years ago. 
So originally the founding team was very young, right? So we grew up during the school shooter epidemic in America. We grew up uh, very close to these sort of incidents. So my background is I grew up around 30 minutes away from Sandy Hook. Uh, Dylan, our, my technical co-founder, he also grew up in the same town as me. So we had very similar backgrounds there. Uh, and coming into college at the height of the school shooting epidemic, uh, when Mike, our CEO, pitched me the idea of using me and Dylan's technical backgrounds, so we built a bunch of apps together. Mm-hmm. He pitched the idea of using that background uh, and applying it to this problem that we had seen uh, people around us struggle with and our own communities deal with. We were like, hell yes, let's see what we can do. Let's figure it out. So that's really the inception behind how we got into public safety as a whole. The transition from like working in schools and, and trying to solve that actuator crisis to shifting to prepared live in this live video for 911 is something that happened uh, around a year ago. Originally, uh, we were working in schools, we were collecting all this really valuable information from schools to help them respond to emergencies, both internally within that school. So think internal communication, lockdowns, getting the right information to the right people, getting the word out, uh, and externally connecting that information to 911 and to these emergency responders, EMS, fire, PD, right? So we were really successful with our app in, in internally communicating information. But as soon as we wanted to get that information to those people that are trying to respond and end those situations, Mm -hmm. like police, fire, and EMS, uh, that's where we saw a big disconnect. Right. Uh, Like we just couldn't send it to them because their systems weren't designed to take in this other type of information. So we're like, as a startup, we're like, okay, let's just go out and build it. So we started off, set out to build that, that bridge between the schools and emergency services. And in doing so, we created Prepared Live. Uh, which we launched in two centers to just see what sort of information these centers cared about. And within two weeks of launching that software that allowed live video to be taken into that center, mm-hmm. we actually saved our first life. Wow. Yeah. So like that sort of like stark transition and stark, uh, like real tangible impact that mm-hmm. our system was able to have so quickly made us really have those tough discussions as a founding team and, and uh, rethink through what we had been working on and what our real mission was. Yeah. And if you can kind of go deep dive into that in terms of like the existing infrastructure and why it's not as successful as it should be today, could you maybe highlight some of the kind of p- key pain points that exist with the whole like 911 process? And you've already alluded to how kind of you're solving that, but what are those key risks associated with like this outdated infrastructure that we currently have? Yeah. So the 911 dispatchers and call takers, the people that are answering the phone, they really do an except exceptional work right so they really like do wonders over the phone uh it's just that the tools that they were given to do that they're doing the like the best that they can given those tools and that, that that set of information uh what we've seen happen is when you add in this layer of live video and maybe i should give a tangible example of what that looks like in practice mm-hmm. uh, to, to better illustrate how live video can help change the game in terms of response an example would be early on when we launched repaired live there was a call when in one of our centers somebody called in saying there's an unconscious person what do i do uh, that not when dispatcher on the other side that answered the call said okay do you or anyone around you know cpr that original caller that called 911 didn't know CPR, but he went out to the room, he ran around, he found somebody new CPR, that person came over and started performing CPR on that unconscious person. Usually this is where a dispatcher really can't help very much more. Right. There's like techniques to guide somebody through CPR over the phone, but like it's hard to like make that tangible to the person that's actually performing it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what they were able to do because they had our software, they could upgrade that call to be live video 
Yeah. And they could see through that original caller's phone to see that CPR being performed in real time. And what they were able to do was the dispatcher, they know what proper CPR looks like. They were able to correct that person's hand position, not once, but three different times over a four minute period that it took yeah. EMS to arrive on scene. And the EMS that arrived like, told us a story that that person was in critical condition and they may not have, they may not have survived if it wasn't for that CPR being performed immediately and correctly. Mm -hmm. And hearing that story so early on into the formation of Prepared Live really like sent shivers down our, our spines and made us yeah. really realize the impact of how this, what this can do at a national scale. Right. And in terms of your platform specifically, um, is a user actually downloading an app, app to their phone allowing it? Or is it kind of more native bases and just kind of through call and then there's some way to access it? It's a great question. We've taken... Uh, the path of least resistance to getting as many people to adopt it as possible. So the, the first thing is it's not an app that's down on the phone. It's purely web-based. Okay. Uh, and we work directly within the 911 call flow because if you're in an emergency, if you're, if you're in an emergency in America, you're kind of like wired to call 911, right? Like yes. that's like yeah. what everybody knows and everybody's been taught since like they were children. And that's a flow that we don't want to change. So what we do is essentially when you call 911, the dispatcher, the, call, the person that answers the call on their side, they can send you a link to your phone through your phone number. They can text that to you and you can open up that link and live stream directly on that link and upgrade that experience through your mobile browser. Got it. Got it. So, and you haven't had any kind of resistance to that in terms of saying, just because it's an entirely new experience for many users. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, Walk me through what, uh, you know, individuals making a call 911 are actually uh, sharing in terms of, in terms of like, was this easy? Was this difficult? Is this like new? Um, you know, walk us through that. Yeah. So initially, yeah, we, we thought that, that there'd be like a hesitation from populations on being able to use it or like if they should use it around security and privacy. There's like a lot, originally we had a lot of those concerns, but when it comes down to like these actual incidents, when people are actually in emergency and they actually need help, those sort of hesitations tend to go away. When they're in the emergency, they tend to not uh, think about those things and, and they tend not to be as big, big of an issue as we originally mm -hmm. thought. Uh, so we, because we have this link-based approach and we take like a very strong privacy stance, like we don't collect data uh, that you don't directly share to us, yeah. we don't share that to 911. Uh, we take the stance that like our goal is to have our thing as easy and, and intuitive to use as possible. Mm -hmm. So we've had people of all demographics use our software successfully in these calls. And you can get people to live video within around 10 seconds or less. Got it. Got it. So it's a very frictionless experience and yeah. makes it very easy for anyone, yes. regardless of, say, age, essentially, to yep. make that call or get access to that web link and then kind of go through that process. Exactly. And, and that's something that anything that's easy on the front end uh, that you, the user see there's yeah. it's inherently complex in the back end, to make back end. and facilitate that to work. Right. Got it. So yeah, like yeah. the engineering has, in the company has had to put a lot of effort into making that as seamless as possible. Got it. So, you know, we've understood kind of what prepared does and kind of the mission that you're after and kind of the problem you're solving. One thing I would actually love to touch base on is since you guys are a pretty young co uh, founding team, I'd love to understand the dynamics of how you guys first created your team, knowing and understanding the right fit. Um, and maybe the criteria you guys, uh, you know, assessed before making the decision of this is the founding team. Yeah, that's a great question. And something that uh, 
we had to think a lot about initially, right? Uh, for me and choosing my co-founders, it really came down to two things, like passion about the issues that we're trying to solve and trust in that person to be able to like accomplish those goals and stick around. So let's, I guess let's start talk about each founder. So for mm -hmm. Dylan, it was uh, Dylan's other technical co-founder. We grew up in the same town together. We took classes together all throughout high school. Uh, and I learned to trust him through building many of what now I realize to be like uh, mini ventures, right? So like right. little little companies, little startups, like that app, the app that is used by every student in our school. Uh, so I knew I already knew he was incredibly smart and somebody that had very complementary skills to my own. So that trust was was inherently there. As for the passion I mentioned earlier, like we grew up in communities that were affected by these things or around those sort of communities. Uh, so it was very top of mind and something that was definitely worthwhile to both of us. And, and we recognized that very early on by us just shifting to this idea very quickly. Yeah. Uh, Mike on the other side had a very similar background. Like he grew up right next to the Chardon shooting in Ohio. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was the one that originally had this idea for prepared and for working in public safety. And when he pitched it to me and Dylan, uh, we were both um, almost immediately all in. Uh, like the first week I remember we spent an all nighter building the, the first, the first like prototype of the right, app okay. to show to a school. Cool. Uh, so it's very, very quickly we, we, we meshed and we realized that this is something that's, that's worth solving. Yeah. And I think the basis there is really focusing on, uh, trust as one kind of key criteria. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just the longevity of a partnership that, you know, you know, you can kind of go through the ups and downs with this person. But I think the second point you mentioned was at least from the technical standpoint, you worked with, uh, your other co-founder on other mm -hmm. several projects. So you understood one, maybe their technical expertise, uh, their limitations, and then you can kind of backfill some of those uh, kind of areas. So I think that's that's very important. And many individuals don't kind of think about, you know, have we worked on previous projects together and understand how we kind of work as well? Yeah. Uh, I think that's usually a missing component. And many people just go in it uh, just saying like, okay, cool. You're the sales guy. Mm -hmm. I'm the uh, marketing guy, whatever it is, technical guy. And then uh, you just have a mess because you don't know what exactly how it works. Um, and in terms of establishing your specific roles, yeah, how did you kind of go about that? Because I know you have two technical in individuals yes. and uh, Mike is more, I guess, the business side of things. So between you three, how did you kind of uh, divide and conquer, I'd say? Yeah, so that's something that's really important. And actually, like, I think you hit the nail on the head with that question. It's something that we actually are working through uh, and have worked through over the last two and a half, three years as the company mm -hmm. has grown, right? Uh, very early on, it's very easy to just not think about that, right? Yeah. Because uh, you're just heads down, you're building, you're just trying to get what your product to market, and you're trying to even see if this is a worthy idea to even fight for, right? Uh, so really early on, it's not as sort of a problem. It, it really becomes... Uh, something that you think about more readily when you start hiring people and bringing them on. I think Blitzscaling calls that like the family stage when yeah. you start get at the end of the family stage, start of the tribe, tribe stage. Uh, so for two, the two technical co-founders thing is something that uh, we've had to think through and, and work towards over the last two and a half years between me and Dylan. Uh, and for any founders out there struggling through this sort of problem, I think that uh, it would, I, I think the case study of me and Dylan might help. Mm -hmm. on how we decided to split up those two, our, our two responsibilities. Uh, essentially, what we have done is we've seen over the last two years uh, where me and Dylan naturally gravitate towards. Uh, so on my side, I naturally gravitated towards uh, like working with people and getting like that sort of uh, like people, like managerial aspects right. 
Uh, and I tended to like, like, like doing those, trying to figure out what the, what the people problems are and try to solve those within the engineering organization and just trying to be heads down and like getting things prioritized, getting things, uh, getting things built on time. Yeah. Dylan, on the other hand, he naturally gravitated towards that sort of architecture side of stuff, like thinking through that long-term, where do we want to be on the, te on the technical Got side? It. How do we want to make the engineering team more effective and efficient? Uh, and how do we make that happen in, in like incremental, uh, incremental steps? So I've taken more of the engineering manager side. He's taken that more of engineering architect side of things. Yeah, no, I think it's always important to establish those uh, questions and kind of mm -hmm. discussions early on. And maybe to that point, have you guys as a team um, dealt with, you know, disputes and kind of how do you handle where the direction of the company is going? Because, you know, as founders, you might have a different sense of where the company should go. So how do you kind of dispute and res uh, get to a resolution? Yeah, that, that's uh, that's very important to to get better at as, as time goes on, right? Because initial, initially you don't have those sort of frameworks to think yeah. about those sort of decisions. Uh, and I guess a framework that has really helped me towards like those bigger decisions when uh, they're more of like the strategic direction of the company and uh, bring in more of emotions. What I've seen help from help myself is using the framework of like starting with why or starting with myself. So like I can give an example of that shift that I mentioned earlier when we changed the company's focus from being schools mm -hmm. to being prepared live in 911. Right. Uh, so that transition was very stark. So we had been working for two and a half, three years building out the school side of stuff. And we had just, at, that, at this point of the, that transition, we had only launched prepared live for two months or a month and a half at that point. And we had only two centers on it, right? Um, but what we, so, I didn't necessarily know where that was going to go or no, right. no one really did, but Mike sat both of me and Dylan down and brought up this radical idea of sh shifting the entire company's focus, cutting out, cutting off all the work we were doing on schools and, and putting all of our efforts on this live video software. And initially I rejected that idea. That's not okay. something that I thought yeah. was good. Uh, and I had all these preconceived notions of where the school software and school's ecosystem could be and, and if we continue to pursue it. Right. Uh, and it felt to me like it felt to me like Mike wanted to throw away all of that work that we spent the last three years working on. Right. Because yeah. literally that's what he wanted to do. Like, like candidly, that's that's what he was pitching. Uh, this is where that framework sort of helped me think about what is the right decision and what first, why am I having this negative reaction toward it? towards it? And why is Mike bringing this idea to both me and Dylan? Uh, and starting to think about why I had the negative reaction, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. It's because I was stuck in like the sunk cost fallacy. Yes. Uh, yeah. My initial reaction was because I had so many uh, ideas of where, what it could be, I got lost in the minutia of what we were actually trying to accomplish as a company. Yeah. The objective, our mission at the time was to build software that saves lives. And if you look at the actual numbers, the school software had been used in dozens of drills and dozens of schools, but had never been used in a real incident and never yeah. actually saved somebody's life. Yeah. And prepared live within two months had its first uh, like real save. Yeah. 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 And that's the sort of uh, sort of thing that made me understand where Mike was coming from, understand my biases, and come in with a more level head to that sort of discussion. Yeah. I always like giving the analogy as uh, in the sense that what you just mentioned is like individuals might have an emotional attachment to something um, and there might be a subjective value to that based on the emotional attachment. But realistically, 
something is only worth what it's worth. In that case, what you probably had is like kind of an emotional attachment, given the work that you've spent on kind of building this out and the scope of the problem that you're solving. And now it's just like, oh, damn, this is a brand new thing that we have to kind of do. So I guess like as a founder, you're trying to also learn how to disassociate emotions from logic, uh, which is kind of difficult at first when you haven't experienced so much of it. But I guess as you kind of go through the drills and every day, you kind of it it, it becomes more normalized in terms of your actions and behavior. So uh, you kind of push towards that. So, I mean, kudos to you kind of focusing and making sure that framework is being implemented and you're focusing on that. Yeah, and and there's something that I think is important during these sort of discussions because they can get very heated, right? Uh, yeah, people yeah, can yeah. feel like they're not heard and, and not understood. <laughs> is making that clear that you're actually cons- weighing their opinion into account. You're actually trying to fundamentally understand what where they're coming from, and most of all, like going back to the meta idea that you're both here for the best of the company and yourself, right? Yeah, you're both yeah, yeah. here for the good of the business, and if you like in the heat of the debate, if you if you like mention that and you like say, okay. We're both, we're both trying to solve the same thing. We just think about it slightly differently. It really puts things in perspective and, and has calmed me down in the past. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And so you mentioned that your, your, your strengths are more towards the managing side of things, especially with the engineering. So that is a great segue towards the next question I have for you is kind of building the organization as a place where people actually want to work. And in my opinion, that is one of the most difficult things to do because without mm-hmm. human capital, you can't really build and scale your company. And so at Prepare, how are you guys kind of trying to create that voice in the tech ecosystem as a place where people want to work? And this is a unique company that's solving something unique as well. Yeah. So I guess I'll answer that question by talking about like how we approach the company yep. as a whole. So really, in the simplest form, a company is like what you do, which is like your mission and your end state and what you're trying to accomplish change in the world and how you do it. Do you accomplish that uh, mission or step forward with a smile on your face and excited about what you're doing? Or are you frown annoyed and disgruntled about that sort of work, right? Uh, So if that's how you approach it, uh, what we've really done is try to hammer in that how portion and, and uh, really do that from the bottoms up, right? So we have a step in our interview process uh, called the culture interview. And essentially what that is to us is, is a mutual assessment about it, it being very clear about what we value as a company and, and what we care about uh, as individuals. And our goal is to have a, is to find a candidate that understands those values, resonates with them, and wants to replicate that going forward, right? So it's all about the culture being bottoms up with employees you bring on. Uh, and once you do that, you can have, you bring on people that want to do exceptional things together and want to work together towards that, mm-hmm. that uh, common what, what, you, what you want to do, right? Yeah. And, and as it pertains to specifically, say, engineers, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, one of the harder roles that are given uh, what we have dealing in the startup environment today, yeah. uh, what have you learned? when it comes to hiring engineers? And is it something in terms of focus of like, say the technical skills being more important at an early mm-hmm. stage or that engineer being more of a Swiss army knife being more helpful at an early stage? Like what are you kind of assessing when you're going in through these interviews with the engineers? Yeah, so the first step that I have during the interview engineering pro- engineering interview process is essentially like, just an intro call where we do mutual assessment fits. So that was what I mentioned earlier, where you're trying to make sure to set the foundations 
behind the type of engineering you're trying to bring on. Mm -hmm. And essentially what I found very helpful with that is to come in with the idea of what sort of archetype of engineer you're looking for, which is what you're describing. Uh, and more recently, we've seen a shift. So like in originally when we were hiring engineers, we really wanted to get these generalists, these Swiss Army knife engineers that can really tackle whatever we give them. Uh, and that's because during our pre-seed round and, and for like the last year and a half, we didn't necessarily know where the company was going to go. We yeah. didn't know necessarily what sort of product we're going to offer. And that was a good thing by hiring general engineers. We were able to do more products, build them out faster, see what stuck, uh, take things through the run, uh, the crawl, walk, run uh, process quicker and able to validate things. Uh, so really, we, we hired primarily those generalist Swiss Army Knife engineers earlier on. Uh, now we're seeing a shift uh, towards us wanting to bring in these very like specifically technically special engineers mm -hmm. that have these domain expertises that we could otherwise learn. Generalists could learn those domain expertise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But if they have that expertise in the first place, then it's you have a boost, right? They're plug right. and play. Speed to execution. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the real thing that you want to ask yourself with bringing on those people is will you have work for them now and in six months and in a year, right? Like, will there continuously be work in that specific niche? Because generally they don't want to branch out past that that area. Yeah. And what we've seen that apply to us is we've had to hire uh, like uh, incredible uh, like DevOps security uh, and like compliance engineers where they know have done all the audits they've gone through the process they've maintained high uptime environments before and that sort of engineer we know there's there's an infinite amount of work as the company's right for, yeah yeah uh, at least for us in our in our situation so sorry but that for the long-winded answer that's yeah, how that we cool. transition uh between like the pre-seed and then our seed round got it but we still value and are looking for those generalist 10x engineers yeah no for sure i think there's a place um for kind of all those roles, depending on kind of the stage you're at with the company and maybe the product where in terms of how it's developed. Um, and one thing I've gotten from a lot of founders recently is how difficult it is actually hiring some engineers because of their salaries um, and especially with inflation and big tech coming in mm -hmm. and just like boosting salaries. Like some of these like super experienced engineers are making like 500K uh, salaries, which is absurd for a small stage company. So yeah. what is your best piece of advice in terms of, you know, being competitive uh, in the engineering hiring market, especially when you know you can't compete in terms of like salary and stuff like that? Because uh, we know you're not going to be paying 500K to an engineer. That's literally going to kill your runway. So yeah. like, what, what what's the goal and how do you compete? Yeah, so I, I love this question. This is actually something that we've had to think a lot about, right? Being a startup and hiring engineers in this environment. It's something that we work through daily uh, with hiring and specifically, as you mentioned, on those engineers. So let, it, I think it goes back to our interview process. Uh, we think the interview process is, as mentioned about mutual fit. Uh, we, we are really jacked up about what we're doing, right? And we know, I know we're biased on, on our yeah. mission and vision, uh, but the right person should be jacked up about that too, and they will be. Uh, so if you communicate that the correct information about prepared in, in the right way, the candidate should have that motivation after that first call to continue the process. And put like to put more simply, we don't believe we compete against these big tech companies in our package because a startup, in our opinion, is just a fundamentally different sort of mm -hmm. uh, offering or job at, than a big tech company. So we want to hire people that are excited about joining startups specifically and are excited about being 
a part of creating something really big. The kind of impact that doesn't exist at a big company, right? So like yeah. a new employee at a big tech company like Google won't come in, create an outsized impact. They won't come in and directly reap the benefits of their work through equity. They won't have the opportunity to reach outside of their initial role and do 20 different things that may be exciting to them, may not be. Yeah. Uh, and if those things, that sort of freedom doesn't matter to you, then a big company is where you should be and where it'll probably make you what's happy, right? Because a lot of people really value the stability of a big company, the name, yeah. the yeah. salary. And if that's the case, there's always a big company that will pay more than a startup. That's always the case. If always you hire somebody and you compromise, what will cause, what will prevent them from, say, leaving in a year if a bigger company offers them a higher pay package? And that's really detrimental to a company's culture if you have engineers that don't necessarily want to be around or think they may want to be around, but just don't actually know what it means to be in a startup or what yeah. that environment is. Yeah, no, I've had this discussion. So it's uh, it's funny because um, one of my friends who's a founder, they recently told me off the record, by the way, uh, so I won't mention names and stuff like that, but uh, <laughs> they recently hired some big tech uh, engineers. Uh, they went through the process. They felt like, the, you know, they're a good fit and whatnot. They soon realized like they're like just not kind of implementing the, in, I guess, like encompassing like the, culture of engineering or the startup kind of vibe, if, yeah. if you want to call it that, um, and not fitting in in that sense, because they were very kind of circular in terms of their process. And it's very automated because once you're at a big company, it's kind of like almost steady state in terms of your day to day process. And so when they were kind of pulled into other discussions, it was hard for them to one problem solve um, and maybe provide solutions because they're so ingrained into say their day to day. Um, yeah. And so they made the decision to cut those engineers um, yeah. and hire like, you know, other en engineers from maybe smaller companies, which they found were a much better fit in the long run. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now they're at kind of nearing series B. So they've, they've been successful in kind of also learning the yes and no of hiring engineers. And again, to your point, yeah. like some engineers are fit for big companies, some are good at smaller companies, it all depends. Yeah, and I think it actually can change based off the career of that person. Like yeah. at a certain certain stage in life, you have to care about salary. Like if you have family and kids, and sure. kids going to college, you really emphasize the salary and the stability versus uh, like in a different stage of your life, a startup is super exciting to you because you are fed up with the bureaucracy of a big company or that's not something that environment that you work enjoy working for and you want to work for a, a team of really exceptional people and be around those people that excite you to go to work every day right so like fundamentally i believe startups are just a different offering which is different with different perks so yeah if, if it's a salary is just one of those perks that a startup can offer yeah no that's important um so let's go into another question related to engineering that um you know is important because uh we have to weigh the decision of whether to buy or build um, so it's interesting because, you know, some companies look at, you know, outsourcing their, uh, engineering as a short term mm -hmm. or maybe sometimes even long-term solution to costs or, you know, developing yeah. their solution or MVP, whatever it is, but some have a very strong belief that we're going to control our IP. We're going to build it internally. And yeah. so in your opinion, could you kind of maybe go through the pros and cons of each approach? Uh, from a technical scope, I guess. Yeah. Um, and that way we can get a better idea of, you know, that decision of buy versus build. 
Yeah, so this is a, a thing that we've actually made many mistakes on throughout mm. the history of Prepared. Uh, we've felt the time crunch and we've uh, made decisions that may not have been the best for the company at the time to buy instead of build or build instead of buy. Uh, and this goes to, like, as you mentioned, outsourcing for engineers. Uh, we've come to the conclusion that we want to have all of our engineering in-house uh, because what it comes down to is we ask ourselves a question during a build or buy discussion. What are we in the business of? Are we in the business of doing X or Y? Uh, and in the situation, are you in the business of like your engineer, your product, right? Like, are you, an, are you a like software company or are you not? Mm-hmm. If you're a software company and your software is integral to your success, then you should ha- probably have those people on the team that can really think about that every single day and make sure that it's, it, it's going correctly uh, for, those more like nuanced decisions for builder versus buy. Like there's a bunch of decisions you had to make for like, are you for auth systems or security and compliance? And are we in the business of like auditing our system ourselves? No. So we buy an auditing system that helps make that process easier. Uh, and really what it comes down to for us for like the more like nitty gritty builder versus buy decisions is it's sort of like 80, 20, following an 80, 20 rule. Mm-hmm where can you get 80% of the value for 20% of the work if you buy something? If you can, it's most likely worth paying for. Yeah. It saves engineering capacity and engineering hours, which is in a startup, one of the most constraining things. How many things can you get out in a given week? And if it's not your core offering, if you're not in the business of it, why necessarily would you spend engineering effort on it? Got it. So it's a just it's just kind of evaluating um, kind of, you know, there, you have a decision criteria around, you know, other financial impacts, uh, kind of value adds, capacity planning, and based off that checklist, you're going to evaluate whether this is a buy or build decision, and whether this fits in kind of the long term scope of what we're trying to do in terms of building. Yeah, right. exactly. Okay. Awesome, awesome. So uh, that kind of like say rounds off like the the technical portion of the discussion. One thing I always like to talk about is something personal to you. Um, so I, I I think many founders always get into this loop of when they're on a podcast or whatever, they always get specific questions to the business and how to grow the business, but not specific to them. So uh, I'd love to touch on one topic that's very important is this idea of work-life balance. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, the construct of work-life balance to you and what it means to you. And then maybe I can even share like my thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. For for me, uh, this is something that you think about a lot as a founder because in a lot of ways, a startup can bleed into your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been working on it for four years. It's your baby. It's something that you're really proud of. And we acknowledge at Prepared that we're different than the standard nine to five, right? A startup inherently uh, it is a different sort of, of, of world, right? Uh, if you want to have an outside impact and the true startup experience, it's going to be a different kind of job and it's yeah. a different kind of stakes. So some like what we've seen happen over the last uh, year and a half, two years is Essentially, we wanted to make prepared like a place that we want to be for a long time, right? Uh, a lot of my best friends work at prepared, and some people I care the most about work alongside yeah. us. Uh, and as founders, the work is exciting in itself too. So that's just something that like we want to make make people want to work with us and want to work in our environment. Of course, we have to be very cognizant about burnout of ourselves and our employees. Yeah, and we want to make sure to prioritize what we need. So we call them our invariants. Just like engineering has its, inv- its invariants around security compliance. So I have my invariants, which are like: Do I sleep well? Do I eat healthy? Mm-hmm. Do I work out regularly? Do I hang out with my friends? Do I uh, make sure to to visit family? And I try to keep those 
at variance as strict as possible. And, and what that comes down to for me is planning around those. Yeah. So making sure that I, I put them in my calendar, I set those aside as times I don't move. Uh, and that is something that I think has helped me not get into the trap of like having work be the only thing that's going on in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So my philosophy is a bit different. So one of the principal things I think about is um, when I evaluate work or kind of something I'm doing, mm -hmm. is it actually kind of a value add in terms of where I want to kind of be in the future? So that's one of the things that I'm going to view as work life. Um, and mm. in terms of the scope of work, actually, I don't try to view work as like work in a sense. Mm -hmm. It's I, I view it as an experiment to accelerate my learning. So yeah. if I'm in an environment where I'm actually kind of accelerating my learning, it's that old cliche of like, you know, uh, it's not really work then. It's kind of an environment yeah. that you enjoy. So yes. that, that's kind of the main focus. I've been in roles where work is work, where I absolutely hate it, dread it. And then I want to go out at like whatever, like nine or whatever, uh, nine to five. And then afterwards, I just really want to focus on myself and not think about anything. Whereas I've been in other environments like startups specifically where it's one, there's no stress around, say, you have, you're have you stuck to a schedule or right? anything. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Um it's an open kind of flexible schedule. You're free to do whatever and whenever, but as long as you get the work done, it doesn't really matter, right? Two, like to your point, having an exciting environment, exciting work and opportunities that create that vibrant experience is really important. And then on top of that is like, how do I co-relate some of those experiences at work and maybe apply it to my real life? Uh, so some things I enjoy outside of life uh, or outside of work, I should say, is uh, chatting with friends, networking with friends. And that kind of also is like work related in the sense that have I created, have we created a culture where we can interact and stuff like that. So I, I almost think of it as a synonymous thing where they're intermingled because, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, most of our life is kind of working. Uh, yeah. And I think people lose scope of that in, in the sense that, you know, let's disconnect the work and the life. But yeah. my view is like kind of how do I connect those two where I don't feel like flush in the sense that I'm always like stressed or stuff like that. So that's kind of my viewpoint on work-life balance as a whole. Oh, I, I completely resonate with that sort of idea where you want to be, if you're going to be working most of your life, you want to be happy while, while doing it. And that's something that uh, we try to create that culture and environment because truly the founders do feel that way. Like we love everybody that we bring on and, uh, we really enjoy working with everybody here and, and we try to make sure that our employees have a same similar sort of experience because that's yeah. really unique about a startup that you can't really get past like the, tri the tribe stage, right? So like right. after the tribe stage, you're really getting to the bigger company sort of approach. Got it. Yeah, uh, yeah. But in the fa like we're at that turning point between uh, family and tribe and that's where we want to keep it as, as long as we can. Yeah, you know, it's, it's that not... influx. It's that change. Yeah. And it, it, it's definitely difficult when you scale because yeah. you're going to have to implement process, have to yes. implement structure and format. And I think that's where you start losing some of those other individuals saying, because they're so used to the family environment. Uh, so it's kind of a separation there. But uh, that's that. But another thing that founders typically are not usually asked about is what are your, what are your thoughts on wealth creation? Like, uh, yeah. how, how do you go about uh, you know, creating wealth, building, I know you have the company, there's equity there, but beyond the scope of say your shares and stuff like that, outside of that, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So 
to be honest with you, uh, I've been lucky enough that I, don't, I haven't had to think too much about that sort of long, long-term wealth mm-hmm. creation or even short-term wealth creation. Uh, it, this may sound a little preachy, but like the problems that we're trying to solve right now in the company are hard enough to give that they take 100% of my attention. Yeah. Uh, so I haven't really thought about like outside of prepared, what am I trying to do with, with wealth and, and creating wealth? Because uh, my main focus relating to wealth right now is really just how can I manage having an, a, a, a good lifestyle right now while working on yeah. the company and, and, and trying to solve the problems that we're trying to solve. So it's not necessarily creating about wealth for the long term. Uh, what gets me excited isn't really necessarily that wealth. It's, it's more of what we're working towards every day. Got it. The impact. Yeah, the impact. And that's really like, like there's a saying, why do you go into public safety? That's the question that people ask you all the time in public safety because it's not an industry that people normally choose to go into. It's not an easy industry. It's not something that is quick and you make money in really quickly. It's something that you're, you're going to be in for a long time and you're going to have yeah. to create just like you to create long lasting change. And that takes time. So there's like that sort of approach around we're, we're in it for long haul. We're in it for public safety and, and mm-hmm. making, making the world a better off place. Yeah, no, that's a fair answer for sure. And uh, last question here is more philosophical uh, in general, but how do you define a great friend? Because we know we work in the tech space. There are a lot of egos and individuals out there, you know, not the greatest and some are great. So like, what is your approach in terms of, you know, a great friend? um, And how, how do you kind of view that? I guess there's two different things that I think about here. The first is, I think a great friend is someone that you can truly rely on, someone that's there when it counts, but not just that, it's that, that you you want to be there when it accounts for them and, and yeah. when they need your help and you prioritize them as much as they prioritize you. So this this may be coming from a, a hard thing about hard things, but uh, there's the two type of friends that he mentioned that I, I really agree with. It's the friends that you can call when you have great news mm-hmm. and they're super excited for you and they really, they really pump you up. And yeah. the ones that you can call when you have that really bad news and going through those tough times and they're here to help empathize with you and, and, and help you get through those situations. Uh, there's a saying that it takes a village to support a founder. And yeah. I truly think friends are one of the most important parts of, of that foundation. And something that I haven't prioritized as much as I should have mm-hmm. in the past. And something that I'm trying to work towards, uh, work towards prioritizing more in the future. Yeah, no, I think it's important, especially as a founder, like you're, I say like the founder like role is kind of isolated in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that cliche of founders being lonely and stuff like that, long nights, or whatever. But I feel like, you know, founders have their own kind of circle. And if they're in, able to kind of build a strong yeah. friendship circle with other founders and whatever that capacity is in terms of the friendship, like the highs or the highs, the lows or the lows, I think you'll figure out kind of that circle that really is kind of prioritizing you and your being the best you. Uh, and I think that's important as a friend. It's just like uh, one thing I always try to avoid is like individuals that are trying to just be transactional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are the lowest like value adds there are. It's like, yeah. hey, if if you want something from me, you have to do something for me in return. Like yeah. I get that in a sense and a scope, but not all the time. Like sometimes mm-hmm. it's just, you know, giving, giving help there without any asks. Uh, and I think those are like the truly the valuable relationships that you build over time. Um, yeah. and I think that's important, but you know, there's a lot of, of personalities in tech. Uh, I'm pretty sure you've heard many stories, especially 
with you being in more of a bigger tech uh, ecosystem, but you know, it's uh, interesting to see like your viewpoint there as well. So, uh, Neil, that's kind of the bulk of the podcast. One thing we always like to finish off with is a quick lightning round. So I have four questions okay. here, uh, really quick questions. Um, you'll have a couple seconds to answer each one. So let me know when you're ready. Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> all right, let's do it. So first question, favorite book of all time. So I would have to say for, I guess it's related to work, uh, but it's called switch. It's okay. how, how to change things when change is hard. Got it. Found awesome. to be super incredible and super helpful. Got it. Got to put that on my list then. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would that be? I would have to say like now would be Mr. Beast or, or J- okay, Jimmy Donaldson. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I love his channel and the idea of treating creators on YouTube as like a startup. I listened to a podcast about him yeah. over that sort of thing. And I really resonated with me, like the thing, challenges he's had to work through uh, in the creator sphere is something that I've seen myself have to work through in a startup. Yeah, no, he, he's an absolute genius. I guess yeah. Beast makes sense as well. Yeah, um, absolute Beast. <laughs> what is your, oh, um, I'd say if you had one company in mind uh, today, uh, that you could invest in, who would that be? So I would probably, okay, so just thinking through the companies that I work with on a day-to-day basis uh, in the startup, I would ha- have to say one of my favorite ones is Webflow. So I don't know if you know about them. They, yeah. they make marketing websites really easy with low code uh, or even no code in some situations. And I wish I could invest in them. I'm not a venture capitalist. <laughs> I'm not wealthy enough to invest in venture capital yeah. funds that could then put money in Webflow. Uh, but I really love their ideas, and I think that their product really has made our lives easier. Yeah, I'm huge on low-code, no-code kind of solutions mm-hmm. as, as I think they're kind of a gateway to so much innovation that we can yeah. create, uh, especially with like individuals such as me who are not, have zero technical skills in general. So uh, yeah. that's obviously big. Uh, last question here. Uh, we usually say the most controversial one for last is, do you like pineapple on your pizza, yes or no? I, I'm against pineapple. On okay, pizza. sweet. We're on board on that page. <laughs> I, I will say that if uh, if it's on the pizza and it's the only pizza that's there, I, I'll eat it. <laughs> yeah. But would I order it? Not now? a preference. Not a preference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Awesome. So that's that's the podcast there, Neil. Um, any last words for our audience and where can uh, anyone find you? Uh, so people can find me on uh, LinkedIn, Neil Sony or neilsony.com. That's N-E-A-L-S-O-N-I.com. Uh, and I'm really excited to be on this podcast with you. And I, I love hearing the stories about other founders and hopefully pe- people can reach out to me.